And uh, I think I probably speak for all of my colleagues when I say that I'm really um, moved and uh, feel honoured to be sharing this retreat with you and just witnessing the sincerity of everybody's practice and effort and commitment, even when things are difficult. I've been hearing 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows from people in the groups. And um, really, I take my, take my hat off to you all for uh, still being here on this fourth evening. <laughs> And I hope that this evening I can offer you something to kind of keep you, keep you going in some way, whether it's a kind of more orientation that you feel you need or a little distraction or <laughs> <laughs> entertainment is not usually my forte, but it's amazing what we can be entertained by when we're on retreat. <laughs> As thinking about all the all the ways in which I've kind of listened to Dharma talks over the years, and you know, as you've heard, I spent quite a few years as a nun, where you kind of didn't have any choice. A bit like you on the retreat, frankly, you didn't have any choice about whether you went to listen to a Dharma talk or not. So sometimes you're kind of really looking forward to it, and sometimes you're just thinking, oh, "Please, no!" I, and you know, I, I don't want to listen to this person, and <laughs> feeling like I'm kind of the image comes to my mind and maybe because this is happening in the UK at the moment there's the Wimbledon tennis tournament and uh, which I I watch and I think the Williams sisters are about to maybe be playing off against each other but and that, that sort of thing like waiting for the Dharma talk you're like standing behind the baseline at the, the back of the court waiting to see what comes at you and how you're going to <laughs> deal with it <laughs> Sometimes I listen in a more enlightened way, but you know, there's all sorts of ways we can do this. So anyway. So um, I'm hoping to this, this evening to do a bit of kind of consolidation for us. Larry mentioned in his first talk about the Dharma being uh, like a bird that soars on these two wings of wisdom and compassion and that we need both elements in the practice. And Nikki spoke about the four foundations of mindfulness and the practice of insight, which is really a wisdom-oriented practice. And Dara yesterday was speaking about um, the heart cultivation of compassion. And of course, both elements are present in both things. But tonight I'm going to speak about a place where for me, I really feel these two things come together, which is the f teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha described this as that an, like the elephant's footprint in the jungle. Of all the different animals in the jungle, each of their footprints could be fitted inside the footprint of the elephant. And the Four Noble Truths is like the teaching that kind of encompasses all the elements of the Dharma. Heard somebody suggest that all the, if you, if you look at the scriptures just of Theravadan Buddhism, there's like huge shelves of the Pali Canon, but somebody's saying actually they're all really just a commentary on the Four Noble Truths. So this is really like the, the core of the teaching. 
And for that reason, it's also traditionally held to be the first teaching that the Buddha actually gave. I mean, we have no way of knowing whether that really was the case or not, but it's considered so fundamental that it's seen as the first teaching. And there are four noble truths, and I'll go through them in a minute, but they, you, they can even get condensed down into two things which Dara mentioned last night. She quoted this statement of the Buddha that I just teach two things. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So the Four Noble Truths are uh, the elaboration of this teaching of suffering and the end of suffering. And we, we talk about suffering, but you could look at the other side of that coin and look at it as teaching happiness and the route to happiness, real happiness and the route to real happiness. So the four uh, noble truths are also, as Nikki mentioned in her talk, they come at the end of the list in this fourth foundation of mindfulness of, of dharmas. And like the hindrances that she spoke of, they have uh, tasks associated with them. So it's actually um, these, these contemplation of dharmas or contemplation of phenomena. It's ways of um, looking at phenomena that are helpful to us. So it's a way, of, a way of looking at the world, way of understanding the world that helps our practice. So the Four Noble Truths are the truth of dukkha or suffering, the truth of the arising of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the way to the cessation of suffering. And I'll talk about each one in turn in a minute. But just to say kind of a few general things about them as a, as a whole. So first of all, this word noble, the, uh, the translation of the Pali word aria, um, has been kind of traditionally by the early English translators talked about as noble. It's like it's something that means like the most excellent or the best. Um, but a, a way of translating it that I find more useful is the ennobling truths. It's like practicing them ennobles us. The Buddha was very clear. He had the, the, the India of his day, just as it is now, but maybe even more so, was really dominated by the caste system. And people would ask him lots of questions about that. And he was very emphatic in his teaching that, this, that the caste system actually had no relevance to people's real worth and that nobility came from your character and your actions. And it's orienting ourselves, living from this understanding of these truths that actually ennobles the heart and the mind. So Nikki also shared this, this image, which I hadn't heard before, and I really liked, of, of the being like a recipe for cooking. And it's not about just looking at the recipe, but actually it's about using it to cook a dish. And another, another uh, metaphor that's also used is that of the, a doctor. So the Buddha was regarded as like the, a doctor for the sickness of suffering. And so the Four Noble Truths is like the description of the disease, the diagnosis of the disease, um, the cure for the disease and the medicine that we need to apply. 
And again, just as with the recipe, you don't just sit and look at the recipe book. And well, we, some of us do. Some of us, <laughs> some of us really enjoy reading cookbooks. But actually, at some point, you have to get on and cook something with it. And similarly, if you have a bottle of medicine and you just sit there and read the label, it's not going to help you. So actually, we need to we need to take the medicine, and we also need to know how to take it and when to take it, and to take it in the right doses. So this is, this is the task to be undertaken with the noble truths. And coming back to the compassion element, this teaching was offered out of compassion. So when we, when we think about it and apply it, it's really um, helpful to, to really have that in mind so that any guidance or any way that we pick up an instruction or a teaching, and we were talking about this in, in one of my groups this morning, is to, to kind of remember the underlying intention behind it. We get so many instructions and bits of guidance about what to do, but to, to just remember that the underlying intention behind this teaching is the alleviation of suffering. And it's also something that is, it's not about something out there that we're going to realize in 20 years' time. It's actually uh, to be investigated here and now. So the Dharma is always is described often as apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading us onwards or inwards. Both, the word kind of means both onwards and inwards and to be experienced individually by each wise person for themselves. So when we contemplate these truths, it's also to contemplate them directly. As Larry was speaking about meeting the moment directly and touching it deeply. This is where uh, we really meet the practice. So the first noble truth of dukkha, this word dukkha, the truth is that there is dukkha, and dukkha is to be understood. Dukkha is uh, what we translate as suffering. Uh, but again, you know, as Dara has been saying, words have all sorts of different resonances, and perhaps there are other, other words that actually kind of capture it uh, a little more with more clarity or help to round out our picture. So the word dis-ease or the opposite of well-being would be ill-being, stress, unsatisfactoriness. So unsatisfactoriness is a good one because um, it doesn't mean that things are inherent. Necessarily, all things are necessarily what we think of or experience as suffering, but just that they don't have a capacity to provide lasting satisfaction to us. And the word dukkha actually is one of the, the etymologies for it. The explanations of the meaning is that it's like the axle in a wheel. It's related to the, to the word for the axle that goes through a wheel that doesn't quite fit properly. So it's the way that things kind of turn not quite satisfactorily, that they kind of get stuck and grip, or that it's difficult, for, difficult to turn. There's a sense of uncomfortableness about it. So we, we all know this. I mean, none of us, I think, is on this retreat because we're perceiving too much happiness in the world, <laughs> either 
in our own lives or in the world around us. I mean, som- sometimes we hit points in our own life where we're feeling actually pretty contented and things are going pretty well, sometimes. But there's still a sense, actually, things in the world aren't right and that we want to be doing something about that as well. So, we, you know, it's the perception of suffering in ourselves and around us that brings us here in some way. And traditionally, this is... Um, described as the suffering of the body, the fact that the body gets old, gets sick, dies. We lose things, we lose loved ones, we suffer from grief and despair around that. And in a general day-to-day sense, just anything that brings us into association with the unpleasant, with things that we dislike, or that separates us from the things that we love and want, or just the experience of not getting what we want. These are all ways in which dukkha manifests for us. And the task with dukkha, so each of these four truths has a a task associated with it. This is the bit where we actually do the cooking instruction. We don't just see the ingredient, we do the cooking instruction. And the task with dukkha is to, it needs to be known, to be understood And the word that for this in Pali implies thoroughly understood. And understanding is a nice word because uh, actually the the word suffer comes from the Latin and it it means to stand underneath, to, to bear something on your shoulders. So it's about standing under suffering rather than being crushed by it. And the beauty of, one of the beauties of this teaching of the Buddhas is that it points out that suffering is normal. It's not a mistake. It's a part of being alive. And this is so different from the message we get from society is that suffering is a mistake. I don't know how many of you have had, I definitely, particularly when I was younger, had the experience of feeling I wasn't happy and that something was wrong with me. It's like if you're not happy, you're somehow failing in some way. And we really kind of feed this delusion in ourselves because society wants to deny or hide or ignore suffering. You know, we shut away our old people, we shut away our sick people. So there's a different perspective on this. And Dara spoke beautifully about it last night when she she quoted that poem from Rumi about keeping your eye on the bandaged places because that's where the light comes through. And I just wanted to read um, something from Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who also gives us a different perspective on suffering. This is from his book, Together We Are One. And it's called No Mud, No Lotus. Mindfulness has two functions. The first is to get in touch with the wonderful and beautiful things all around us. The second is to get in touch with the difficult emotions like anger, fear, pain and sorrow inside and around us. Mindfulness can help us recognize and embrace these difficulties and transform them. Not only is paradise available in the here and now, but hell is available in the here and now also. 
Mindfulness practice helps us to get in touch with both the wonders in order to be nourished and the suffering in order to heal and transform ourselves. People tend to think of their true home as a place where there's no suffering, only happiness. But this thinking goes against the wisdom of interbeing. We cannot grow a lotus flower without mud. In order to grow vegetables, we need compost. Any organic gardener knows we save our food and garden waste. This garbage is organic, and with it we can make compost to nourish flowers and vegetables. Suffering and happiness are also organic. We can transform suffering into well-being. This is the Buddha's teaching. The lotus flower is not possible without the mud. Understanding and compassion are not possible without suffering. I would never want you to be in a place where there's no suffering, because in such a place you wouldn't have a chance to learn how to understand and be compassionate. It's by touching suffering that we have a chance to understand people and their suffering. By understanding our own suffering and the suffering of others, we begin to know what it means to be compassionate. And it's only against a background of suffering that we can recognize our happiness. No lotus flower can be without the mud. My definition of our true home is not a place where there's no suffering, but a place where I can cultivate compassion. So often the really great Dharma practitioners are people who've been through immense suffering. It's one, one teacher who inspires me a lot, who's passed away um, some time ago, but you'll see her picture, some of you will know of her, um, in the Gratitude Hut, is a Bangladeshi woman called Deepama. Um, she was married at the age of 12 in an arranged marriage, and then um, found that she couldn't have children. She had no children until she was 35. She finally conceived a child, and then it died very quickly after it was born. She had another child, who survived, and then she had a, a son who also died, and very soon after that, her husband died as well, and also she lost her health. She really um, confronted an, a tremendous amount of loss in her life, but she had tremendous faith in the Buddha and in the practice, and uh, she began to practice and very quickly attained deep, sta deep states of realization. And I never had the fortune to meet her, but many of my teachers have described her as the most loving person that they've ever met. And I'll share a few words from her later on this evening. So wisdom teaches us that the way out of suffering is to go through the suffering. As Dara said, going through the eye of the needle or into the eye of the storm. And the reason for that is that to cure a disease, you have to diagnose it correctly and apply the correct treatment. If you don't get the diagnosis right, nothing that you do in response is going to work. So that sort of brings me to the second noble truth, which is the origin of suffering or the cause of suffering, the arising of suffering. 
And Nikki mentioned this when she was talking about Vedana. She mentioned the connection between Vedana and the thing that happens afterwards, which is called tanha, which is craving, uh, sometimes translated as thirst. So what happens when we have this experience of something being pleasant or unpleasant is that we start wanting to hold on to it or wanting to get rid of it. And uh, this, is, this is how tanha shows up. And the three kinds of tanha are identified by the Buddha. Karma tanha, which is the desire for sense, pleasure or gratification. Bhava tanha, which is the desire to get or to become. And vibhava tanha, which is to get rid of or to um, not to be, the wish not to be something, not to become something. And these are really related also to the, we often, you might have heard us using words like uh, the greed and aversion or, or um, desire and aversion. We often talk about greed, hatred and delusion. And this, again, these are kind of, you know, they have nuances to them, but basically the moving towards and the moving away with either desire or aversion. So when these Vedana happen, when we, we meet the feeling tones, the mind contracts around it and clings to things. And so what does it cling to? You might have noticed your mind clinging to some things this week. So it clings to pleasant and unpleasant experiences in the body and the mind. And it clings to things out there, to food, experiences, um, objects, views and opinions and to expectations. And what happens is that the untrained mind or the mind that has no understanding of the, the process of this arising of suffering from doing this is it tries to get rid of unpleasant experience and to get pleasant experience instead. But this just keeps us going around in a treadmill. So to really understand dukkha, one of the things that we're doing on the retreat by kind of simplifying our experience and slowing down and paying more attention is to notice ways in which we feed dukkha. And we do this in little ways all day long, big and small. And to the extent that we don't see ourselves doing that, we, get, we remain caught in it. And there are two ways that we can see this arising of dukkha. One is to see it in the in the moment. So there's a, a, a way of looking at this truth which actually almost says that the arising of craving and the arising of dukkha are the same, the same thing. Like when we feel the contraction that happens around something, that contraction itself is suffering. But quite often we don't catch that at that point. We don't miss it. So more often we're seeing this as when we kind of look back on how experiences unfolded, that this tanha or craving was like the origin of the suffering. And things happen down the line, we're kind of falling into a lot of mental proliferation and then we can kind of trace things back. So a, a, a little example, just before I came here, I was staying um, with some nuns in Northern California a couple of bhikkhunis who some of you might know know them uh, Ananda, Ayananda Bodhi and Ayasanta Chitta and um, I used to live with them 
many years ago in the UK when there were nuns in the UK. So I went to them for a visit. And this past week, they've been building a yurt and they had to clear a lot of land around the, the yurt to kind of make it accessible and habitable. And there's a lot of long grass with star thistles in it, which we don't have in England, but they're kind of <laughs> not very pleasant things with these very spiky... Uh, I don't know what you call them, spiky things on the end that can puncture bicycle tiles and things. And anyway, and you have in a monastery, you get given yogi jobs, but they're not like an hour in the morning. It's like a three hour yogi job in the morning. <laughs> and, and they gave me this yogi job of pulling out these star thistles in the long grass, which was, and it was a hot day. And, and I, it was, I started doing this with kind of like, oh, not sure about this, but okay, you know, reasonably chill. I'm happy to be here. It's nice to be visiting these friends. And on about my second thistle, I suddenly realized that I was totally covered with red ants and that they were starting to run. They were running all over my trousers and starting to run inside my t-shirt. So I dropped everything and kind of ran out of the field, took, took my clothes off, shook everything out and uh, came back and it was evident that the expectation was that I would just carry on weeding star thistles. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got back to work and I could see my mind starting to go and it was starting to fish out this old CD in there from 1999 when I lived with these same two nuns <laughs> in, <laughs> in, a, in a little, com little community in England and they were nuns as they are now and they had to, and so they have this rule that they can't cut they can't cut plants and they can't dig the earth which is the same as the the Theravadan monks but uh, I was a novice at the time and the novices can do all that so I was the person who had to do all cut all the long grass and things <laughs> and we had a lot of long grass in that little place in England as well in Devon and my job was to I go around with the, the strimmer, which is quite a heavy um, string mower with a kind of petrol engine that you wear with a harness and you have to have headphones <laughs> and everything. <laughs> and, and I had so much resentment about having to do this, this heavy work. And, um, and prior to that, I had, I'd been, before I joined the monastery, I trained as a lawyer. So I had a, a mind that could kind of really fish around for reasons why this was just not right, that I should have to be doing this work. And it's like, you know, how can these nuns practice this rule and then expect me to do this on their behalf? And, and I suffered for weeks doing that, doing that job until I finally got to the point where I realized, well, I want to be here. You know, I have options I could leave or uh, I could just really create a re problem refusing to do it. I can do it and I can keep suffering, or I can actually just do it and just drop all my complaining about it. And once that happened, I actually started to not mind the work at all, and um, actually it was quite satisfying to be keeping the place nice, clearing the ground that needed to be cleared. And actually, I quite enjoy physical work, really, um, when it got down to it. So I, th this last week, I could just see in that situation, my mind was starting to replay this whole track with a now a new overlay. Oh, and I'm just here visiting. And I was expecting this retreat. Wonder if, you know, if Larry or Nikki or Dara had been visiting, they wouldn't have made them do this. And <laughs> what, do they, what do they see me as? And, you know, so 
this is just like, and I could see all this hap- the potential for this to really get running, but actually something in my mind could see, see this happening and actually chose not to go there. It's like, I don't have to really mess up my morning, get myself upset. And so I just started dropping this. Actually, what's really happening right here, right now? It's a little bit warm. That's okay. I only actually got bitten by two ants. And it's not actually, when you feel an ant bite, it's not, you start investigating it. It's not that bad. It's not not that unpleasant. There's even quite a kind of, there's quite an interesting tingly feeling to it. So I just, with the sensation of this ant bite and the warmth and the occasional thing sticking into me that I would just pull out again and then being really mindful to look around and just make sure that I didn't, you know, disturb another ant's nest. And it was okay. But the amount of additional suffering we can create out of a simple experience like that is just, you know, and we do this in little ways to ourselves all the time, not to mention the big ways. So just I, in that moment, I could, having done, been through all that once, I could just see I'm not going to feed this. And actually the problem fell away and I enjoyed my morning. It was fine. <laughs> so... We do, this, we, we do this with what we don't like, and then we also create problems with what we like. You know? we, we want it to last. We don't want to let go. So a very simple example. Like I, the, the ending, you may have noticed this when you're eating, like the ending of pleasure. It's like, what happens next? It's like, or the ending of, maybe you're having a very good sitting or you're really enjoying the yoga practice and you don't want it to end and then it, it suddenly ends and the mind's like, what next? So that you end the cookie and you think, okay, well, I'll, I, I need to have another cookie to keep the pleasure going. But it tips and actually there comes a point where pleasant becomes unpleasant. <laughs> I know this one very well. So... So those are, I mean, those are, those are kind of trivial examples. But to be serious about it, we can see how much harm gets done you know, in the world through misunderstanding what really causes happiness and what really causes suffering. You know, people throughout history have really tried to create comfort and security for themselves out of insecurity, which is inevitable and without regard for how they do it or the suffering that happens as a result. We think that getting more stuff is the answer to happiness. We think that shutting out things or people that cause us to feel uncomfortable or disturb our complacency is the answer. And we don't want to live in a world like this. So for all of us to really get real about suffering and our happiness is service to the world so the task for this second noble truth is to stop to abandon or to let go of the craving to stop feeding it to let it cease to drop it and I think it's interesting actually the language again in the in the second noble truth it starts by just witnessing its cessation So it's almost like you don't have to do anything. You just have to stop interfering and things will, it will start to undo by itself. 
there's a little quote from Ajahn Chah, who was um, the teacher of my teacher, Ajahn Samedo, and also of Ajahn Liam, who um, Nikki quoted from. He says, If you see clearly the truth through meditation, then suffering will become unwound, just like a screw. When you unwind a screw, it withdraws. It's not tightly fixed as when you screw it clockwise. The mind withdraws like this. It lets go. It relinquishes. It's not tightly bound within good and evil, within possessions, praise and blame, happiness or suffering. If we don't know the truth, it's like tightening the screw all the time. You screw it down until it crushes you and you suffer over everything. When you unwind out of all that, you come, become free and at peace. So just to kind of add a note that letting go, and again, this is something that I think has come up in groups, is not the same as bypassing. It's like you can't, you can't let go of something that you haven't let touch you. Yeah. If you're still if you're still fighting to keep something away, then that's just this vibhava tanha, this wanting to get rid of. And this is something that we have to learn gradually because we can't often we can't open to everything at once and it wouldn't be wise to. The the body and the mind have more wisdom than our intellect which wants to get quickly to the end of this path. And we, we need to learn to tune into that holistic wisdom rather than trying to force issues for ourselves. So we aren't necessarily there yet, but we can have an aspiration. And I found a very beautiful aspirational poem, if you like, by a Zen Roshi called Hogan Bays, which I was, will share with you. So he says... In this passing moment, karma ripens and all things come to be. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there's need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there's sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it's my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So this is an aspiration. And what happens when we do this is that the third noble truth starts to open up. This truth of the cessation of suffering. Or what Thich Nhat Hanh calls the cessation of ill-being and the birth of well-being, which I like. The Buddha said that the end of suffering is to be seen for yourself, to be experienced directly and personally and in this body. 
to know what it feels like for yourself when dukkha stops and to know the fruit of letting go. And we heard this uh, beautiful description of Ajahn Liam's experience of really um, profound peace and letting go. But it's also, um, we experience this in smaller ways ourselves and you've had tastes of this on the retreat, I'm sure. So Ajahn Buddhadasa, who's another Thai forest master that Larry mentioned, he used to teach about mini nibbanas. So nibbana, one translation of it is cool. So there's mini coolings down. Moments when the mind is clear and without wanting and without aversion and at peace with what's arising. And this is kind of, and he, he said, if, if we didn't have these, and we do, if we, if we didn't have these, we'd all be crazy because the mind can't keep getting tighter and tighter all the time. It has to, it lets, it lets go from time to time. We need to notice when that happens. And I think it's the same with Ajahn Chah's screw simile. We couldn't possibly be tightening, tightening, tightening all the time. It's like we tighten and then we let go and then we tighten and then we let go. But we, what we don't do is continue the process of letting go. We just re-tighten again. So... I know several yogis have reported really beautiful moments of of letting go and noticing something drop away or some question suddenly be answered from somewhere or um, spontaneously deciding to do something generous for another yogi and then getting an arising of joy from that. So it's really important to notice these moments of freedom from suffering, these many releases that happen for us. It's also that happens in relation to pain or physical discomfort. You might have noticed that sometimes. There's actually a distinction between pain and the experience of something as painful. Something happens in the body, the mind, it's the mind that labels it or experiences it as painful but maybe just as like with the ant bite that I had it's like actually it just became an interesting sensation it wasn't really causing me any suffering anymore and perhaps you've had moments of things like that that have happened and also similarly with emotions have you had moments of experiencing sadness without really suffering around it so a Burmese teacher, I don't, don't know who, um, said that when the sunshine of loving kindness or metta meet the tears of, meets the tears of suffering, the rainbow of compassion arises. And what's the experience of compassion when it arises? When you meet your suffering with compassion, with, meet pain with compassion, is there really suffering there? in a moment of compassion, or is compassion actually, Nikki said, one of these heavenly abidings? Or you might have felt some reactivity arising to something and actually realized, right now in this moment, I can see reactivity arising, it's not a problem. So Deepama, who I mentioned earlier, um, she said something, Very people were asking her about her relationship to anger, which I thought was, to share with you 
So this is what she said about the way that she experiences anger, experienced anger. She said, a lot of incidents happen in daily life which are undesirable. Sometimes I experience some irritation, but my mind remains cool. Irritation comes and passes. My mind isn't disturbed by this. Anger is a fire, but I don't feel any heat. It comes and it dies right out. And then somebody said to her, at that time she was looking after her young grandson, and somebody said to her, but what if somebody threatened your grandson in some way? And she said, well, of course I would stop them, but I would do it without any anger. So just to reflect on what's possible. And of course, most of us, like me, are still learning to let go. So we need, we need more instructions about how to do it. And this is where the, um, the fourth noble truth comes in. The noble truth of the way to the end of suffering or the eightfold path. This is called the middle way. Majima Patipada. Majima means the middle, and the middle is between the extremes of self-denial and self-indulgence. And it's what reveals itself when we start to have a, a correct understanding of the nature of suffering. And it begins, so the first of these eight folds is correct understanding itself or right view. You might have seen the prayer wheel at the gate as you come in. This is, contains the steps of the Eightfold Path, and I think it, it, it has the word wise in front of each of them. So this is another way of looking at it. The word in, in Pali is sama, um, which is usually most usually translated as right, right understanding. But wise understanding is a good translation. Another possibility is balanced understanding or it also means perfect and I'm thinking about this and actually perfect doesn't mean perfect in some absolute sense but it means perfect to the situation so actually it's what's appropriate to the situation the appropriate response so this wise or perfect understanding has a few elements to it that I think are important to to kind of clock and the first one is actually to see things in terms of the four noble truths to actually have a, a, the right understanding about suffering and the nature of suffering and the way to the end of suffering second aspect or I don't know that they actually come in this order but the other, another key aspect of it is that there are the, the actions have consequences. There are fruits of good and bad deeds and that our existence on a relative level matters. What we do in the conventional world matters. Because the other teaching of the Buddha, of course, is the teaching of anatta or not self. So this is also part of wise understanding is to understand that actually all the things that are unfolding are natural processes and that I, me, and mine are just conventional labels. 
And in fact, the, the, the experience of being a self is just another process <coughs> within nature. There's actually nothing fixed here. And if you really investigate that for yourself, you can see how the experience of self changes from moment to moment in your meditation or different situations in your life, how we manifest as a different self amongst different people and in different situations. So it, it's not to say that you don't exist, but that, that you don't exist in a fixed and definite way, that this is just another arising experience. But people can grasp that and then say, well, okay, it doesn't matter what I do. And this is absolutely not what this teaching is about. So there's being fixating on the experience of self is unsatisfactory. I was really moved by, by the teaching on forgiveness last night and the, the suggestion that somehow in order to, to really forgive and move on, that we have to be willing in some way to almost to die to the past in order to live in the present. So we have to let go of holding to a particular experience of myself or particular view of myself and other people. And then the second step of the Eightfold Path is wise intention or wise resolve. And this basically means resolve of non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion because we understand that our actions have consequences for ourselves and others. And then because we understand that these three things are at the root of suffering, then we do our best not to act from them. The next three steps, so I'm just going to go through this very briefly because it's a lot of information and I've been talking a long time. So the th next three steps are wise speech, wise action and wise, wise livelihood. So these are all about how we interact with the world. And speech is an especially important one here. It's so, it's so very powerful. And wise speech is, is classified as speech that is true and is beneficial and is timely. We'll probably talk a bit more about that as we begin to explore the practice of speaking at some point tomorrow. The next step is wise effort. Samavayamo and Nikki describe this as gentle persistence, which I think is a really good definition. So sometimes forceful action is needed. But in general, we're talking about gentle, gentle persistence with the practice. All these things are only balanced or wise if they include the other aspects of the path, if they include the remembering of the other aspects of the path. So this is the case for mindfulness, samasati, which is the seventh step of the path, is mindfulness that includes the understanding of the other factors. So mindfulness has these dual things of presence and remembering, remembering context, remembering what matters. And then finally, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is samasamadhi, or right concentration. So other words for concentration, stability or steadiness of mind, collectedness of mind. So I think all, the, all these factors of the path are like 
kind of the data in your GPS. It's like this is, I see the path as a, as a kind of map to orient ourselves with. And the more that we practice uh, the factors of the path, it's like we're uploading the, the map to have at our disposal. And it's a kind of multi-dimensional map because all the factors contain one another. Sometimes the path is described as the 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 um, the noble the noble eightfold path. Or another po- another way of seeing this noble is actually the path of the noble ones. So it's actually what a person would do who is free from these these states of greed, hatred, and delusion. So I think a, a person who's actually uh, realized awakening would undertake this path effortlessly. But when we kind of like we feel a bit lost, we don't know what we do, it's what we can refer to, to actually this is a safe guide to action. It's like it's a safe map to refer to, to get us to where we need to go. And just like a GPS, its functioning depends on us inputting the correct data about where we actually are. So mindfulness of what's actually happening now, we can set our current location. (laughs) And then we can use the map wisely. And then also that we actually need to follow the step that it gives us. So again, like taking the medicine, cooking the recipe. So this is the task for the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path is to develop or cultivate the path. This path is to be developed and the development is to be completed. That's the task for this path. The word for the path, patipada, means taking one step after another. And I think because the Dharma is this beautiful big edifice, I used to think of the Eightfold Path as like a grand highway. Like I I think of in the UK, I think of the M25, which is the big motorway that goes all the way around London. But here maybe it's 101, the 101 or something. But it's actually, it's not like that. The path is, path is something that we make by walking on it. It's more like, we, walk, we clear the space with our footsteps like you're walking through, through a forest and making a path or you're walking through a snowfield and it's you that makes the path. And you can only take the step that's in front of you. This is our practice. We don't know when we're going to arrive, but we just keep walking. So I just want to end with um, sharing something from Deepama about her experience of life when this path has been thoroughly cultivated. And then a poem. So Deepama says, there's so much sameness in ordinary life. You see everything through the same lenses of greed, hatred and delusion. But when greed, hatred and delusion are not present, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Now every moment, every day is full of zest. And she was speaking after a very difficult life. I think she was about in her 60s when she shared this. Just imagining that possibility of every moment 
being fresh and full of zest. And a poem from my Dharma sister Dara, who is the source of all great poems. This is by the Reverend Sapphire Rose. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. <laughs> she made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyse whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort. There was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was. And it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her and the sun and moon shone forevermore. So let's just sit for a minute or two.
may we all experience the peace of letting go. for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.